standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 231 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Jen Offord and I don't usually get to do this bit. You might have guessed from the intro that things are a wee bit different this week. Hannah's taking some much-earned time off to do Hannah things. So me and Mick have decided to give ourselves a week off from the news. Woohoo! And because there's no Bush Telegraph, we won't be talking about, among other things, new research carried out by the Fawcett Society, which found that on average, women take home more than £500 less than men every month. And hey, guess what? The findings, which were published to mark Equal Pay Day 2022, which is the day that we all start effectively working the rest of the year for free compared to our male counterparts, that figure has increased since last year. On average, women take home £564 less than men per month compared to £536 last year. You might also have seen in the news this week that women around the world have been setting up scream groups to vent their frustrations with society. Coincidence? If you'd like to join my Essex chapter, only joking, when would I have time between all the other unpaid work I have to do? Let's move on. Coming up, Mick chats with Naomi Smith, CEO of Best for Britain and co-host of the Oh God, What Now? podcast. They're chatting Brexit fallout, the political effects of the latest Tory budget and why Best for Britain is campaigning for a general election now. Yes, please sign us up. Hannah chats to actor, star of The Greatest Showman and the woman behind that huge singing voice, Kiala Settle, about why she was desperate to do a pantomime. And indeed, she is. I'm talking fast women and fast cars in Jenny Off The Blocks and because it's just me and Mick, she's chosen 1942's Cat People for this week's Rated or Dated, a horror movie from the past, two of my very favourite things. Cats though, I do love a cat. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Naomi Smith, co-host of the Oh God, What Now podcast, CEO of Best for Britain and absolute Brexpert. Naomi, <laughs> thanks for joining us. I made up a portmanteau for you. Yeah, you did. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. I should have said reluctant Brexpert because I think you'd rather not mm. be, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny because, and you'll know this probably as well, but when you meet up with friends that aren't political... They're like, oh, Naomi, tell me everything about this. It's all I do. I've come to see, can't we just talk about, you know, your kids and where we're going on holiday? I don't want to keep talking about it when I'm not at work. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, are you heady with all of that control that we've taken back? What a joke. What a joke. Well, I mean, look, in the last week, we've even had George Eustace, the former DEFRA minister, admit oh, yeah, we, we basically lied to British farmers about what new trade deals would do for them. Dominic Johnson, another former trade minister this week, has basically said, yeah, the government needs to start getting honest with industries that are affected about what new trade deals can't replace in lost trade from the EU. So these sunlit uplands were always a fantasy. And uh, and now even, even the Brexiters are beginning to admit it. Finally. Uh, I'd say better late than never, but there's no better. There's no better here at all. Not yet. When you chatted to Hannah and her caps back in 2020, yeah. Best for Britain was a temporary campaign against Brexit. But that has changed. So please, could you tell us what Best for Britain is and does now? Sure. We were originally a Stop Brexit campaign. Our mission was to stop Brexit by any democratic means. 
And we tried mm. bloody hard alongside lots of lots of other people who were trying valiantly to get us a second referendum or a general election outcome that would have meant there was a party or coalition in charge that would have at least delivered a very soft kind of Brexit rather than the extremely hard one we got lumped with. And so having f- sort of failed on that mission, we didn't sort of arrogantly think, oh, we must hang around. We did have a very long, hard think about whether or not we should stay on the pitch. Our board um, denied over it. And we'd built this incredible community of people that had never really been politically active before, many of them. You know, a million people marching on the streets that had never done any political activism in their lives. And they'd been abandoned. The prime minister that had led us into a referendum campaigning for Remain had abdicated. Exactly, trotters up in Nice. And you had Theresa May making speeches about, you know, being a citizen of the world, a citizen of nowhere. Even Labour and the Lib Dems had got quite frightened to talk about why Brexit was bad. So it felt that we did have a role that was maybe still helpful and important in carrying on. But we didn't want to just carry on in the same guise. So we spent lockdown working with um, think tanks, producing evidence for the government negotiators saying these parts of the country will be worse affected if you go for a very hard Brexit, these industries and therefore these jobs. So, you know, maybe think twice about doing what it looks like you're going to do. And that helped us build a bit of an authority as a, as a you know, research and, and polling kind of organisation. So I think now it's easily described as best of Britain doing three key areas of work. We do lots of polling. We do seat level polling. I can talk a little bit more about the polling we had out this week. We do lots of public opinion testing, trying to find out what people really think in the, the kinds of key marginal seats that are going to swing the next election. So we do a lot of work on that. And we work closely with opposition MPs as much as possible in that work, sharing that data with them, letting them know that actually people aren't as xenophobic or as anti-immigration as the headlines on right-wing papers would have you believe, that many of them would love a much closer relationship with Europe, that kind of thing. Then we do a lot of work on legislation. So the government has been bringing forward swathes of horrible legislation, really anti-democratic stuff. Some of your listeners might know that, you know, the policing bill makes it really hard for us to protest now. The elections bill that's now an act means that we're going to all have to take ID into the polling stations. And you know what? Old person's rail card is acceptable. Young person's rail card is not skewing things in favour of the Conservatives yet again. We've been working on the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And when I say working on it, what we do is we convene lots of parliamentarians from across every party, largely in the House of Lords, because in the House of Commons there's this 80-seat majority and it's really hard to get a win there. But in the Lords, it is possible. And so we we convene lots of peers from across the House, crossbenchers, Conservative backbenchers, Labour frontbench, Lib Dems, and you know non-affiliated to put down really good amendments to some of the worst aspects of some of these bills. What we're realising is that almost every bill being brought forward is a Brexit bill because it contains things in it that inadvertently make lives a lot harder for British businesses and or transfers huge powers to ministers away from Parliament. So this sort of authoritarian creep that we're seeing coming through from previously Johnson and uh, then Truss and now even under Sunak's tenure. And that's really, really worrying. And it's particularly worrying for small businesses, for farmers, for fishermen, quite totemically leave-voting industries that are now going to be the ones that end up suffering the most so that's the sort of second area of work after all of the kind of data and polling that we do 
And then the third area of work is where I would say we do the majority of our Brexit work, because we are still very, very, very much an internationalist organisation that wants to get a much closer relationship with Europe again. So when Hilary Benn, who is Labour MP for Leeds Central and you know, a very well-known figure in Parliament, he had his select committee axed by Jacob Rees-Mogg back in January 2021, after we sort of finally officially, officially left the transition period and left the EU. He had the Brexit Scrutiny Committee brief. And by axing that committee, what Jacob Rees-Mogg was basically signalling was there will be no scrutiny in Parliament of how our Brexit has gone, the Brexit that we've delivered, this crap deal we've signed with Europe. Oh, and by the way, we're not really going to scrutinise any other trade deals that Britain's going to be signing either. So what we did at Best of Britain was to say, well, why don't we do the scrutiny ourselves then? We'll get a bunch of MPs, including DUP, Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, Green, Plaid, SNP, and get a load of people that represent industry in like major parts of the economy and we'll set up the UK Trade and Business Commission and we'll run it like a select committee and we'll take evidence every fortnight and we'll live stream it across YouTube and Twitter and and things like that, invite journalists to come along and those experts can be asked questions by our commissioners saying, well, how's the trading relationship going for your business at the moment or your sector or your part of the UK And what needs to be done to make it better for you? What are the barriers that the government could remove? What are the funding pots it could provide to help you navigate how to trade with Australia when you've never had to do that before? But now, because it's so bloody hard to trade with Europe, you might have to. All those sorts of things. And that's been that's been really impactful. We think we helped to get some extra visas for seasonal workers over the summer off the back of the evidence. Because what we do is we have an evidence session We write it all up and we send it to government and say, for goodness sake, you want growth? How about you help British businesses start trading again? And here's one of the things they need you to start doing. So we also go out on tours with the commissioners. We take them to Northern Ireland, to Dover, to farms where fruit is just rotting because it can't be picked. So they're sort of seeing firsthand the impact of this bad Brexit deal. And then I think are better able to advocate for change. So, yeah, they're, they're the three main areas of work. So all our data and polling analysis, the stuff we do to fight the government within Parliament, and then shining a light on the failings of not only the trade and cooperation agreement we signed with Europe, but the really crappy trade deals that they've been off signing to try and compensate for the enormous amount we've lost from leaving our nearest neighbours in Europe. And what do you do with all your free time, Naomi? No. I do a podcast. <laughs> so busy. Now, we will inevitably get back to Brexit, but we are chatting the day after Chancellor and newsreader's favourite, Jeremy Hunt, announced his awesome statement. I mean, are we even calling it a budget? Do we do proper budgets anymore? Uh, no, I don't think they even called it a budget, no. did they? Was it an autumn statement or a midterm fiscal event? God knows. A midterm fiscal event. Sure, bullshit baffles brains bingo (laughs) yeah yeah we should definitely draw up some cards for that (laughs) yeah well we look it was crap wasn't it 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 was trailed to be crap it was crap and it's just terrible news for almost everybody i love that he warns of you know some difficult years ahead and you're like um i don't know if you've just noticed what's anyway yeah when were the great years i can't remember well the best government i lived under was probably 97 to 2001 i think that sort of first New Labour Parliament definitely was the one where it felt, oh, wow, I can I can be really proud of this country and the, the stuff that we're doing and the progressive 
Oh, don't you Where's go, you're going, but... cry. Stop it. Oh, so sorry. Sorry. the budget, obviously mm. not brilliant to put it mildly, but what does it mean politically? What problems does it create or solve for the Tories and indeed for Labour? Yeah, I think it does create problems for them both, Mickey. I think you're right to kind of land on that. And look, voters don't vote for divided parties typically. And boy, are the Tories divided. Mm. Obviously, we've seen the you know, absolute scenes over the summer with the ousting of Johnson and then the leadership race number one. And then uh, <laughs> it seemed like a long time ago, but it was only a couple of months ago that Trust and Quartin caused us all manner of pain. And, and then the ensuing who will run, will Johnson run, won't he run? Oh, now it's Sunak. So they're, they're divided anyway. But then when it comes to tax and spend, it's managed to divide them even further. So the first point being defence spending, that now is going to stay at 2% after Hunt's not budget. And so Ben Wallace, who's the defence secretary, really going to be disappointed with that because he was swayed to support Sunak eventually in the leadership race because he pledged to uphold Truss's commitment to raising it to 3%. And then Sunak's this week, of course, been in Bali at G20, where he was sort of dialing down a lot of the anti-China rhetoric. And that will annoy a lot of backbenchers like Ian Duncan Smith, who are sort of vehemently anti-Beijing. And then on the tax rises, I think Sonak and Hunt are both going to get, you know, an incredible amount of backlash. They've already had some. They had some even before the budget was announced. You had Esther McVeigh, notoriously of the sort of rebellious right wing of the party, threatening to vote against the government unless they were to scrap HS2. Remember, HS2 is probably the reason that the Tory party lost Chesham and Amersham by-election last year to the Liberal Democrats in in quite a spectacular way. Um, Tim Montgomery, some of your listeners might know him, Monty, he calls himself on Twitter. He's the founder of Conservative Home, the, the most sort of totemically conservative blog. He's now said this morning off the back of the Daily Mail front page and tax rises, I'm not going to vote Conservative at the next election. Just astounding stuff. So, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg even now, you know, sort of being relatively critical, saying, you know, I do support Sunak because we can't have another leader, but I don't support what we're doing in terms of hikes. And he called them the the easy option and claimed that only lower taxes can drive growth. So that's a real article of faith, obviously, for Conservative Party members. So uh, the Tories definitely very split before this budget, even more split after it. And the public won't like that. But there is a difficulty for Labour because they've been sort of treading the path of let's give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves in the Conservative Party and we we we, we can sort of stay quiet and let them muck it all up for themselves. And that has meant that they've not really set out their stall. Yep. There hasn't been a sort of grand vision for what a Labour-led government would do for Britain, what Britain under a Starmer premiership would be. And their one sort of big economic idea was this massive windfall tax on the energy companies. And the Tories have now sort of yeah. a- adopted that, at least on paper. So it it sort of nicks that one outlier that you could point to for Labour that the Tories didn't have. So I think they're going to increasingly find themselves getting friendly fire from those who want to see a Labour-led government, but who are getting frustrated with that lack of well, what would it look like? You can't continue saying no plan. Yeah, and, and people who are deserting the Tory party because it's not Tory enough are not going to go to Labour. 
No, no, they're not. As I mentioned, Vesper Britain does quite a lot of polling. And one of the polls we did this week was, well, we released this week, we did it a couple of weeks ago, was drilling into some of the people who, when they respond to a poll asking, how will you vote, say don't know. Yeah. Because we noticed in quite a few of these polls that had showed Labour way out ahead, there were quite substantial numbers of people saying don't know. And we did a 10,000 person poll and it said there were 13% of people saying don't know. That's a lot of people. Yeah, it is. And then we did a top up once Sunak had been in post a little bit longer to see what that had done. And it had gone down to 10%. And so our suspicion was, are these don't knows really genuinely don't know or are they shy conservatives Mm. shy Tories that's sort of a bit embarrassed to admit they would still prefer the Tories over anyone else at this stage so we drilled into that data and it does look like well obviously he's Sunak's managed to get that three percent from 13 down to 10 of don't knows directly over to him and then when we do a follow-up question with the people that said they don't know and go well how likely are you to vote though they are incredibly uh, over 80 percent of them say yes i will of course definitely vote when you ask them how they voted before the majority of them voted right. conservative yeah. of course yeah. and their age profile and education profile and housing tenure profile all fits that of the standard conservative voter or the typical conservative voter and is a very, very long way from what you would see as a demographic profile of a Labour voter. So our message to Labour is you're not home and dry no, yet. No. You, you you can take nothing for granted. You've got to, you know, make sure that you are being very strategically clever. And as and as you said, Mickey, you know, the people that are in that group, they're not going to come to Labour. So at least try and convince a few other people to come back to you who maybe are on the more progressive left internationalisty focused pro-european wing who are equally getting very frustrated at your inability to call out brexit for the disaster that it is so there we are we're back at brexit knew we'd get here and last week british economist michael saunders who used to work for the bank of england said quote without brexit we wouldn't be talking about austerity And the UK Mm. is now the only G7 economy that remains smaller than it was before the pandemic. There's no doubt that our oven-ready 2016 journey to the sunlit uplands has a lot to answer for in the current cost of living crisis, right? Oh, absolutely. The government have been bloody lucky in a way that they've had a pandemic. They've had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They've had global supply chain issues they've had so many get out of jail free cards to point at as a foil as a fig leaf as a oh no no it couldn't possibly have been brexit because look there are all these other things that are causing it but thankfully you know emerging from the pandemic and proper analysis being done of comparably sized countries comparably sized economies almost doppelganger economies that you can that economists sort of look at and they can then disaggregate when Germany and France and others are are similarly facing the pressures of global supply chain problems of the Russian invasion in Ukraine and yet are performing better, it does beg the question, okay, well, come on then. Now, of course, there's Brexit and that is a huge part of it, but there is also just general conservative incompetence on the economy. And I get so frustrated that there still seems to be this absolute you know sort of 
emperor wears new clothes kind of dogma that the conservatives are competent on the economy i I was laughing as you started that sentence because i knew exactly where it was going i mean when you look at it it's just not true I mean, we, we, we've had a lost decade before the decade that we're going to lose that's now projected in terms of growth, in terms of wage growth, in terms of the inequality gap galloping. And, and we did a little bit of research on this recently, looking back at former Conservative chancellors. And I think they've, they've held the role of Chancellor for 30 out of the last 43 years or something, you know, ridiculous like that. And boy, oh boy, they have each of them left the economy on most measures, whether it's the value of sterling, whether it's on GDP, whether it's on the inequality gap, in a worse state than they found it. I mean, only Gordon Brown didn't. Yes, Brexit's exacerbated it and they're terrible hard Brexit, but it's not like the non-Brexit parts of the economy they're any good at either. No, I do worry that there isn't enough rope in the world for them to hang themselves with. It does feel like (laughs) that, right? Yeah, yeah. So on that yeah. note, let's talk about the power and necessity of international cooperation and solutions. And I'd like to start that close to home, actually, with an aspect never been properly resolved, or it feels at times properly considered even, and that is Northern Ireland. So what is going yeah. on with the Northern Ireland Protocol? And we're about to break international law again with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. I mean, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I know I don't sound like it. I mean, I can do the voice of one, my two, I can go straight back as soon as anyone from school rings me, I'm straight back into my Belfast accent. So I grew up there and I came of age around the time of the Good Friday Agreement being signed. And it was such a time of hope. I mean, I wasn't old enough to vote in it, but, you know, I was old enough to be very, very aware of just how incredibly important it was. You know, when you were having senators and US presidents and EU dignitaries, as well as Tony Blair and Mo Molum and all these amazing figures coming together to do something incredible, end decades of bloodshed and fear and oppression and all of it, it just felt so hopeful. So I've been really pleased that the international community has stood up for the Good Friday Agreement. We've seen it be a bipartisan issue uh, in the States, Democrats and Republicans united in their defense of it and sort yourselves out, Britain, and bugger off if you think you're going to get a trade deal with us while you're still farting around with potentially breaking international law. Uh, so that, that's that been wonderful. And I think, you know, if Brexit has done anything, it has helped Europe come together on those kinds of issues and its support for Ireland and Northern Ireland. In terms of the actual protocol itself, the deadline has come and gone for Stormont to try and reconvene and form an executive. Chris Heaton-Harris was saying, you know, I will therefore call an election. He didn't. He is now not forcing an election there because the DUP wouldn't solve anything. It It would not break the impasse at all. And there are sort of relatively good mood music noises coming out of both Brussels and Westminster in terms of how negotiations are going. I think in no small part that is because Sunak is seen as such a reset on, you know, the British approach. He and Macron are obviously best buds. They are, <laughs> you know, cozying up to one another. And because he is a true Brexiter in the way that Remainer, Lib Dem, Liz was not and Johnson let's face it he's neither one thing nor the other he wrote both a pro remain and a pro leave column mm-hmm. I'm sure he could have lived with either he's just pro Johnson obs exactly and Sunak was always a very ardent strident Brexiter so in a way he's got nothing to prove he hasn't got to try and prove to any Brexit hard men on his backbenches that he is a true Eurosceptic 
So I think can be less bullish and and um, dogmatic in negotiations or you know in sort of diplomatic tone with Europe. I don't think we're close to a breakthrough on the protocol, but I think the mood music and the sentiment and the tone with one another is is improving. But it would be vastly improved if the government took the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill off the table. Now, this was a Liz Truss bill when she was foreign sec. She kept it there when prime minister, when obviously she scrapped Dominic Raab's bills and things like that. She kept her bill there. And Sunak has so far kept it. And it's it's like this sort of Damocles hanging over negotiations. It's like a gun on the table. I'm negotiating with you but with a gun in my hand that I will pull if you don't give me exactly what I want. Now, come on, that is not a nice way to enter good faith negotiations. You are not in good faith. And what it's basically doing is saying, we are prepared to break international law. You can't trust us to stick to the deals we sign. And it also does this sort of Henry VIII powers thing as well. It transfers an enormous amount of decision-making to ministers and away from parliament for the future. So the lords are incandescent about this bill. I mean, absolutely furious and put down some really sort of marked amendments at committee stage. It's just past committee stage in the Lords. I've got a hope and a prayer that the bill might actually get dropped by Sunak. The government doesn't seem to be in a hurry to bring it back. Normally it would have tabled it again by now and so far hasn't. So a big thank you to everybody who supports Better Britain, who has been getting behind that campaign and writing to their MP about it and writing to their local newspapers about it and things like that, because this doesn't just impact our relationship with Europe and, and Northern Ireland and Dublin. It is sending a signal to the whole world with anyone we might ever want to do a deal with on anything that our signature is not worth the paper it's written on because we will just walk away from anything that we later decide we don't like. So, yeah, I think relations are thawing a little bit with Europe. There's no sign of white smoke over the protocol yet, but there might be a glimmer of hope that the bill will get dropped and then that might be able to help reach a solution on the actual protocol negotiations. Truly a reputation to be proud of. Mm. (laughs) And on that note, talking of borders, let's talk about the migrant crisis. And by that, I mean the desperate people in crisis seeking asylum in the UK, but being villainised and pilloried by our government and the right-wing press as per, because the other meaning is just nonsense. And the rhetoric around people seeking asylum coming straight out of our Home Secretary's mouth is utterly appalling. Disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting. We all thought Theresa May was a pretty awful Home Secretary with her hostile environment. And every time you think an appointment can't get worse, it does. I mean, I how mean, low does the bar have to be before they can just limbo <laughs> under it? I mean, Pretty Patel, horrendous. A bully, a proven bully. And then gets replaced by a Braverman who dreams about, you know sending boats back and oh by christmas naomi don't forget it'll be a christmas miracle yeah um i mean look at best of britain we are all about um internationalism and wanting to lead by example on global issues rather than shirk international duties and this government has contributed to the dangerous situation in the channel because it has closed off so many established routes for asylum seekers. And even if you ignore the very obvious moral duty that we have to another human being fleeing persecution or war or famine or whatever it is, it's just madness economically not to be welcoming 
people into our workforce when we're struggling with all of those Brexit-induced problems that we talked about earlier in the show. We've got 40,000 asylum seekers that have been waiting over three years to be processed. And that is the fault of the Home Office. And they can't work while they're not yet processed. And that means they're not paying tax and they're not filling so many of the shortage occupation jobs that we've got at the moment that desperately would give our economy the shot in the arm that it needs. So, of course, there is this huge moral duty to help these people, and that should be at the forefront of everybody's mind. But even if you are just hard-nosed fiscal conservative, surely (laughs) you'd rather have these people contributing to the economy and society than than just, you know, being a cost centre. Disgraceful. Well, Naomi, because of everything we've just talked about, we've basically been chanting general election now, please, every time we have spoken about the news. Because not only did basically no one vote for the clowns currently in charge, the amount of damage doable between now and 2025 is, I, I, I don't want to think about it, it is a lot. Yeah. And bringing a general election forward is a key campaign of Best for Britain. Give me some hope. Oh, can we demand a general election? No, oh, <laughs> we can't. Damn it. I mean, we can demand it. We can demand it all we like. We can't force it to happen. Okay. And we should demand it. We should keep demanding it. And and Labour has been demanding it. And, you know, we've got a parliamentary system and the Tories have stretched the credibility of that system to absolute breaking yeah. point. Third prime minister since the election, the fifth in six years, countless manifesto 2019 pledges broken you know social care reform royal justice commission etc so they certainly don't have a mandate at the moment for for what they're doing from the country but they don't even have it from conservative members because remember sunak didn't didn't even go to them this time round for his appointment so yeah johnson if we remember him, you know, what a disaster and awful Prime Minister he was. Um, who could have believed we may even have had worse since? Um, <laughs> oh, changed the rules. He was the one that tore up the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which had been a coalition government thing to say, you will have an election on a set time every uh, however long. And it's now just back to the prerogative of the Prime Minister. So our best hope for an election will be that if the Conservatives somehow claw back a little bit of a, a polling lead... They might think, oh, let's let's go to the polls now and lock in for another five years or go now where we won't face such wipeout. But I think the chances of that happening anytime soon, the way the current polls are, is very slim. Sunak doesn't score as badly as his party does. And similarly, Starmer doesn't perform as well as his party does. So uh, there are sort of some gaps between how people view the leader and then the actual party and its policies. But until until they've got a clear lead, they're, they're probably not going to do it. And then once they've got a clear lead, it's squeaky bum time for Labour. And as I mentioned, all of these don't knows that could go and back the Conservatives rather than just stay home or switch to Labour, which I think would be highly unlikely, I think means that Labour need to be thinking about how to get the keys to number 10 in the safest way. And that is very, very clearly working with the Lib Dems and with the Greens and saying, look, Let's do some non-aggression pacts. We won't fight this seat that you're much more likely to win off the Conservatives than we are if you back off in these seats. We saw some of that with the by-elections that happened over the last few years where Lib Dems just ran a paper candidate and, you know, Labour were able to then 
take the seat back from the Conservatives. And similarly, Labour returned that favour in the Lib Dem Conservative marginals. There needs to be far more of that. And that needs to be very strategically done because we've got this really stupid voting system. And then once they get in the door, they need to listen to the Labour members and the Labour trade unions and Labour voters up and down the land and change the system to catch us up with modern democratic countries across the world, whether (laughs) New Zealand or Germany or wherever, and change to a much more proportionate voting system. Well, this all sounds grand. So where can people get involved and learn more about Best for Britain if they aren't already doing so? Well, I'm not going to say Twitter, because by the time we finish recording this, (laughs) it might not exist anymore. Bloody hell. (laughs) Safest thing is org slash join, which is how you can sign up for free if you've got a few pennies left after you've paid your extortionately high gas and electric bill. It's forward slash support. And we'd, of course, be incredibly grateful because uh, what we do is important, but it does cost money. Yeah, it is really important. And the excellent Oh God, What Now is available wherever people get their podcasts. It is. What a title. Love it. I love it. And Naomi, (laughs) thank you so much for chatting with me. I mean, it's been bleak as fuck, but also really enjoyable. But thank you so much for having me back. I can't believe it's been like over two years since I was on. And what a two years. Let's not leave it so long next time. Hi, I'm at the Royal and Gate in Northampton with Human Person. Kiala Settle, thank you so much for joining Hi, us. Thank you. <laughs> this is the second intro we've done because I'm a fucking idiot. Oh, and I said I wouldn't swear as well. Here oh, we well, go. one quid in the jar. So I saw my first ever panto here when I was a kid. Really? Had, yep, Rod Hull and Emu. Um, <laughs> I don't expect you to know who they are, and we've only got 10 minutes, so I can't possibly <laughs> explain it in that time. But what I wanted to know is, what drew you to doing a panto? Because it's such a uniquely British thing. It is a strangely British thing, but it's not strangely at all. It's an institution. And I remember my father telling me about it as a child growing up in the US. And when I moved here, I remember talking to my agent and saying, the first thing I want to do is a panto. And she was like, well, we'll just wait on that. I said, nah. You let me know, because I really, really (laughs) want to do it. And a lot of it is because it's when it's done. It's an institution Mm. in this country, and it's the audience and the way you connect with them and the fact that there is a list of, like, bare-bone rules Mm. and regulations of how to do it, but it really does take everyone in that space. It takes the actors on stage, the cast. It takes the crew backstage. It takes all of the people in the front of house to do it. It takes all of the audience members to be engaged mm. and connected. And, I mean, there are theme parks that are trying to do that. And I say yeah. we, and I proudly say we, we get to do this every Christmas. And for me, this is the first time that I'll have an opportunity to be a part of that. Yeah. And these kids, when I, through my career, they have changed my life in so many ways and given me my own power and my own strength because I watch them and see how powerful they are. Yeah. Just that alone is magic. I'm sure everyone's warned you, but of all the people that I've ever interviewed, actors, you know, they they always say two things are unbelievably hard work, the hardest work in the industry. Number one is a soap opera. Number two is a pantomime. Yes! Bring it! (laughs) Bring it! Oh, bring it. I'm absolutely... You like a bit of hard work. Oh, that's my first job, my first proper job 20 years ago was playing the lead, Tracy Turnblad, in Hairspray, the musical, which was the national, at the time, was a national tour around the United States. For three oh, wow. years, wow. I did it. Oh, my that word. show is two hours, 40 minutes. 
Good God. My own break yeah. was maybe 15 minutes, and that was mostly the interval. That's all I... And I did that for three years. So if you're telling me it's hard work, bring it. That's all I can say. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I can say. It's a challenge that I will absolutely accept. Now, you've already been on the stage in this country. You did a bit of Romeo and Juliet. No, and Juliet. And there you go. Well done, well done. And Juliet, yes. Now, I was in New York in uh, in the summer, and as an audience member, I can't help but notice there is a difference in American audiences and British audiences in the way they respond. Well, of course How have you noticed that? Well, it's because it's the cultures, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's, it's wherever it's born from, whether it's when they left the mother country and made their own country yeah. across the pond, or if it's been through cultural differences throughout the decades, the centuries, whatever it may be, there is an absolute difference. But there's also a different, there's a different energy from both of those countries. Mm. And I can absolutely say that because I've lived with it my whole life. My home has been the Commonwealth with my father being a manky and my mum being a Māori from New Zealand. And then we would have all of those, you know, we had Macintoshes and all sorts, you know, put the post with us. We read Enid Blyton books together. Oh, really? And then we'd walk out our door and it was like, well, I'm proud to be an American. It was a completely <laughs> different culture. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It just exists. They are different ideologies. Mm. They truly are. Now, granted, that ideology actually came from here, yeah. which is hilarious. But yes, it's absolutely different. And I think for me, I've been able to have the best of both of them, um, been able to take them all in and just sort of leave the bits that I that don't serve me, yeah. and, uh, and I'm grateful for that. I think British audiences make you work a bit harder before they're impressed. But I knew that, yeah. because my father of is course, a hard yeah. worker. Do you know what I yeah. mean? So I already went in, mm. guns blazing, going, right. I mean, even when I came in t- today, yeah. because we're doing a press launch, I was like, where do we start? <laughs> do you want to eat? I said, no, we'll put food in the dressing yeah. room. I will eat when I've done everything that I'm supposed to do here, because yeah. I don't know any different. And that's from my father. Yeah. Now, I owe you a thank you for something, which is that you, oh, have, you, you? you have saved my sanity a little bit because I live right next to a school, a primary school. Mm. And whenever there seems to be a rule that exists that whenever a little girl gets anywhere near a microphone, she would sing Let It Go. <laughs> <laughs> and I have heard Let that's It Go. That's a lovely song. This song for about, I don't know, 10 years, really Fair speaking. Play. Until, until The Greatest Show. <laughs> and then... And then any time a little girl got a microphone, what, what she was doing was an impersonation of you, which oh. is actually, I'm going to be honest, way better than oh. listen, for me listening to Let It Go over and over it's again. Just, that is so, that's what I'm talking about with these kids. When these kids find, whether it's Frozen or The Greatest Showman yeah. or whoever, that they find their strength and they find their purpose and they find the courage mm. and then they share it like that. I don't think these kids will ever understand how much it empowers people like me because in those moments we're, we're playing a role and we're doing what we want and we're putting as much of ourselves mm. as we can possibly muster without sort of making ourselves collapse like emotionally yeah. and sometimes we do like I did a lot of that in the show <laughs> as we all have seen unfortunately but that being said when we as actors walk away we forget what kind of impact that is because we're so in the moment so when I see kids do that and talk about that and say that it's it's the most empowering thing for me because I go home and go I made what one person cares Mm. and then you see how many of those millions of people care and it's one of those 
humbling things I've been able to witness. Yeah, I bet. Tell me, are you setting loose those pipes during this pantomime? Oh, babes. <laughs> oh, man, I already love you. I can't You wait. won't be needing a hearing aid, is what I'm telling you right <laughs> Funnily now. Funnily enough, I did just get one. Bring you won't need it, me. love. Between no. me and Bob, God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, when I was in New York, I saw Music Man, which had your friend Hugh Jackman in it, yeah. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah, it was Not really great. Not surprised in the slightest. Yeah. You want to talk about a work ethic? Uh, yeah, I yeah. bet. Yeah. I don't know how he has the energy. I mean, he was literally just because everywhere he loves doing it. everything. Yeah. Because well, as much, yeah. uh, which is why I love him so much, and probably why we are so close. He's like my, he's like my little brother, yeah. even though he's older than me. <laughs> By the way, Hugh Jackman's older than me. I just wanted to make sure everyone knew that. I'm not going to give the number out, but he's older than me. His work ethic uh, is extraordinary, and a lot of it is because he believes uh, in everything that he does. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you one more question. Come on. So, as someone who has spent my entire adult life mm. ripping hair from my face, tell me, what does it actually feel like, look like, to have a beard on? So, my beard was attached to my wig. But it had to be attached. So when I went in, it was two and a half hours every day for, for about six months. Wow, sir. Uh, in the morning. So I came in with another uh, young man who was playing the dog face boy because he mm. had to have all of his stuff put on as well. And so it was prepping the hair and then it was doing makeup on my face. And then my beard was in four pieces. There was the moustache. And then the sides of my face were two separate pieces, yeah. and then the bottom bit was another piece. That's four. And it all had to be connected to my hair. So that was the other biggest piece, was the fifth piece. And so it took about two and a half hours every day. Given how women and, you know, that sensitivity around facial hair, what did it feel like to actually look at yourself and have that? Um, it was astonishing to me and you know, as, as an actor, as a performer, whatever you want, as a human person, whatever you want to call it, when you're telling stories like that, yeah. it is, it's testament to what is involved in telling the story. You know, all of the hair and makeup people that had to be involved in that, all of the costume people. Yeah. I mean, the dress that I wore in that film was about two stone. Oh, Christ. Yeah, and I danced in it. And, and I wore it for almost six months, and so it. But it literally transforms you. Yeah. And because I had done so much research on a woman who actually had polycystic ovarian syndrome, mm. um, and I was able to sort of, sort of navigate through all of those things. And then when I had those pieces on me, it just sort of made it so much more real and aided in the storytelling, which is exactly what they're meant to do it's yeah. brilliant when it works it's brilliant and yeah. it did it did yeah. for me I, I once went to a fancy dress party with a fake moustache on and someone told me it suited me and I couldn't make up my mind what? whether that was an insult or a compliment doesn't matter you yeah. still stayed didn't you yeah I did well done yeah I did Kiana this has been a pleasure um, if people want to hear more or see more of your glorious <laughs> ebullience they should come Yes, the, you uh, should come to the Royal Dangay at yeah. Christmas time, please. Fantastic. Jack and the Beanstalk starts on the 2nd of December. Yes, it does. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. 
Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we douse the crowd in champagne from the podium as we discuss all things women's sports. Now, I didn't want to do this and continue to harp on about the World Cup, which as I said in last week's podzine, I won't be watching, but there are a couple of points that have sprung up since last we spoke that I feel are important to address. First of all, let's talk about pantomime villain Gianni Infantino, who you probably would have heard by now spoke on Saturday ahead of the start of the tournament in Doha. FIFA's next shittest president addressed what he called hypocrisy of the West, who, lest we forget, have also done terrible things. And he's absolutely right on that front. Our government does terrible things all the fucking time. And lots of people call them out on it. That's how it works, Gianni. But I do want to address that point in more detail because it does keep coming up. Yes, no country, particularly the UK, has an unblemished record when it comes to human rights, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about them. And we're not just talking about existing laws such as those affecting women's rights and LGBTQ plus rights in Qatar. We're talking about thousands of people dying and many more being treated appallingly in the name of this wank fest of grotesque financial privilege. They've died building this World Cup so that the Qatari royal family could swing its big football dick around the world and generate even more wealth for themselves. So to say, well, you know, we're all bad, it's just missing the point entirely. If you want to watch the tournament, that's fine. You do you, go ahead. It's not your fault that this tournament is happening. But talk about the issues, acknowledge them, don't engage in pathetic whataboutery to just justify what is happening. I also want to say, because I've heard this a few times as well in the last week, it is utter bollocks to suggest that no one cared about the World Cup being hosted in Russia in 2018, where there was all sorts of unsavoury stuff going on. There wasn't as big a fuss, that is a fair point, but I think that's because what was happening there in terms of ultras and treatment of LGBTQ plus fans was much less widely known about than the laws that govern Qatar, which are there for all to see. As this information came out, there was a huge amount of press about it and people also complained about the manner in which they had come to host the tournament so if you want to make that argument it's just not true on monday morning ahead of england's opening match and in further abject bell injury fifa decreed that harry kane captain of the england team could not wear a one love armband in support of lgbtq plus rights they're obviously a truly awful organisation, a dictatorship really, and nothing they do will surprise me after Infantino had the gall to stand up and say, today I feel migrant worker. But it's a real kick in the tits for people watching who wanted some display that all of the FA's efforts to include LGBTQ plus fans wasn't just corporate hogwash. Fuck you FIFA and you, the FA, for not standing up to them. Moving on to some bravery, which is nice to see in all this. More of the Lionesses have spoken out against the tournament now, including Captain Leah Williamson, who says she has no interest in watching it, and Everton forward Izzy Christensen, who's even shunned a punditry gig for the BBC, saying she doesn't want to be involved in any capacity. And let me segue seamlessly now to women's football, which continues throughout November and December if you don't want to watch the shit show in Qatar, but you do want to watch some football. I took my daughter to her first ever football match on Saturday, Arsenal v Manchester United at the Emirates Stadium. I was hoping to keep her entertained for the first half, that was my ambition, but the absolute little smasher did me proud and managed the whole game. Though that is largely because I gave her a sausage roll to pacify her, to be fair. Lyra was much more interested in her sausage roll than she was in the football, but I think she really enjoyed the experience and I hope that she'll keep enjoying it. It was a great day out and it's bloody lovely that you can take a two-year-old to a football match in the WSL. Right, 
Ailish McColgan, congratulations to you for winning the Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year Award last week. The middle to long distance runner won gold in the 10,000 metres at this year's Commonwealth Games, breaking the record set by her own mum, Liz McColgan, 32 years earlier. She also took home a silver in the 5,000 metres at the Games. Other awards went to the Lionesses for Team of the Year, double Paralympic swimming champion Maisie Summers-Newton for Disability Sportswoman of the Year and to Alice Deering for Changemaker of the Year for her work in highlighting diversity issues in swimming. Congratulations to them all. Some more great news over in Formula One. Yes, you heard right, Formula One. Anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while will know that we are big supporters of the All Women W Series. So I want to big them up again now because without them and the work they've been doing over the last few years to get more women involved in motorsport, I genuinely don't think this would be happening. And that is that the F1 have announced that they are starting an all-female driver category, the F1 Academy, aimed at developing young female drivers for higher levels of competition, including the W Series. This is geared up to eventually get more women, or well, some women, into Formula 1. There will be 21 races and 15 days of official testing and the schedule is due to be announced shortly. The series consists of five teams run by current F2 and F3 teams and the idea is to give drivers more experience, which is really, really hard to get in motorsport. So yes, Formula One, this is great news and we applaud you. Right, that's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which cinematic classic did we watch this week which had us all advocating for a longer courtship period before marriage? (laughs) What, like three days? Do you want longer than three days, Jen? (laughs) I just couldn't help but think as I was watching it, shouldn't you have mentioned that before you you got married? Oh, you're so old school. You're more old school than a film made in 1942. (laughs) Because, yeah, this week we watched 1942's Cat People. I'm actually going to start with a question, Jen. How many Mm -hmm. men have you resisted snogging for fear the passion will turn you into a panther? That's a good question. I was going to say 85. Yeah, thought so. It is a real bind. One in which our (laughs) protagonist, Irina, played by French actress Simone Simon, finds herself in Jack Tourneur's... Tourneur. Tourneur. I think it's like Turner, but French. Tourneur? Tourneur. I'm just going to do it in my (laughs) shady French accent. In Jack Tourneur's low-budget horror classic produced for RKO by Val Luton. And interestingly, it is producer Luton rather than director Tourneur who is most associated with this beloved cult movie. Luton went on to make a slew of similarly minimalistic horrors for RKO Studio, including I Walked with a Zombie, The Leopard Man, The Body Snatcher, and 1944 sequel The Curse of the Cat People, granting him big boy status in the horror and film noir annals. Indeed, with its low-key, low-angle lighting and dramatic shadow effects used to create an atmosphere of tension, mystery, claustrophobia and moral ambiguity, Cat People is textbook film noir, with the exception that the term wasn't actually coined until three years later in 1945. Now, RKO were hoping for a successful low-budget B-movie horror when they suggested the title Cat People to Luton and then just (laughs) left him to it. We've got an idea. What is it? Cat people. What do you want? Just off you go. Uh, And Luton, (laughs) keen to avoid the cheap werewolves, vampires and man-made monsters churned out by other studios, 
brought in writer DeWitt Bodine. There's some cracking names involved with this, who began researching cat-related literature. I include this not just because it's relevant, but because it is the first time I've thought of cat-related literature as a genre, and I absolutely want to get involved. (laughs) From now on, solely reading books about cats. (laughs) How many cat literature... Like, what... I don't think I've ever read... I mean, apart from, obviously, Dorno Porter's recent efforts... I can't think of any. Um... It's a whole new world, Jen. Uh, obviously, you can <laughs> you can borrow them when I when I've devoured them. <laughs> anyway, Bodine and Luton landed on Algernon Blackwood's 1906 short story *Ancient Sorceries*, set in a French town inhabited by a group of devil-worshipping cat people, but brought it bang up to date by setting it in 1940s New York, which at the time was a really unusual move for a horror film, and you know, chucking in a love triangle. Cat People had its premiere at the Rialto Theatre in Manhattan on December the 5th, 1942. It did well at the box office, although there doesn't seem to be any decisive statement on receipts, with suggested totals varying between $1 million to $8 million. It's quite a big gap there. That's a lot though, isn't it? In 1942, that sounds like a decent whack at the box office. I'm not sure. Totally, yeah. You could buy a lot of cats with that. You could. (laughs) Especially in 1942. (laughs) Contemporary reviews were meh, with even the positive notices lacking enthusiasm. Even director Tourner held varying opinions about the film, saying that it was very childish, but audiences in those days were more naive than they are today. But there are some very good things in it. He's trying to have his cake and eat it, I think, there. He is, yeah. Indeed, one of those very good things became known as the Luton Bus, a genre-specific device used to build, then dissipate tension in horror movies. First seen here with Alice being pursued by Irina, who could turn into a panther at any moment. Pursuit? Can can I get away with that? Pursuit. (laughs) And Cat People was also reimagined in 1982 by screenwriter Paul Schrader. That's right, he of Taxi Driver, with a soundtrack by David Bowie. Never heard of this. So I first became aware of Cat People in Manuel Prigg's novel Kiss of the Spider Woman, as it is one of the films the prisoners chat about to pass the time. And yet, I still hadn't seen it before. What about you, Jen? Of course I'd never seen it again. (laughs) As if you would think for a second that I had. (laughs) All right, the plot... Lonely Serb in Manhattan Arena is sketching and littering at the panther enclosure of the Central Park Zoo when she's <laughs> spotted by Oliver Reed. Not that one. Rather, it is actor <laughs> Kent Smith. They chat. He walks her home. She invites him in for tea. They have an incredibly formal talk about the legend of King John driving witches who could turn into cats out of Arena's home village and begin to fall in love. I mean, of course they do. They're only human. Hang on. Hang on. (laughs) Something's worrying Arena, who gradually reveals to Oliver that she believes she is descended from the cat people of her village and that she will transform into a panther if aroused to passion. Lols, says Oliver. (laughs) Smitten Oliver buys Arena a kitten, which he keeps in the smallest box you've ever seen. Yeah. It's a shoebox, that is. It's even a a big shoebox. Where are the RSPCA, eh? (laughs) The kitten, however, is not keen on Arena. Weird, says Oliver, and so she suggests they swap it for something else. Cue a trip to a pet shop run by a woman so chipper she verges on demented, where the animals all go crackers in Arena's presence. 
Undeterred, Oliver swaps the kitten for a canary, something which we can all agree can only end brilliantly for the canary. It ends dead for the canary. It's a literal canary. It's a warning. Arena again mentions she believes she's descended from the cat people of her village and that she will transform into a panther if aroused to passion. Marry me, says Oliver. <laughs> Let's do it in a Serbian restaurant, he adds. During the wedding, a cat-like woman approaches the table, says, all right, sis, to Arena, and then departs, leaving Arena in a right old tiz. Come on now, says Oliver. I've been discussing all of your private problems with Alice, the woman I work with, who has clearly got the hots for me. And she suggested you see a shrink, a specific shrink called Dr. Louis Judd, who she's also noted is a creepy old fuck. So Arena does. Dr. Judd tells her it's probably all just childhood trauma. She needs to get a grip. At this point, though, Arena, not without reason, does start to get a bit jealous of Alice and follows her home, but is thwarted when Alice jumps on a handy bus, a Luton bus. And then Arena decides to head to the panther enclosure and steal the key to the cage. Alice, by this point, has declared her love for Oliver in a weirdly passionless speech that ends in a formal handshake. Oh, (laughs) the past! (laughs) And so Arena is, again, not without reason, pissed off when the three of them go to a museum together and Oliver and Alice make it very clear they'd rather Arena just sodded off somewhere else. (laughs) That evening, when Alice decides to use a basement swimming pool of her apartment building, she is stalked by an animal. What kind of animal could it be, Jen? (laughs) I don't know, it does do quite a lot of meowing. That is true, meows and growls. When Alice screams for help, Arena appears, turning on the lights, and says she's looking for Oliver. Actually, I love Alice now, says Oliver, says Arena, (laughs) as a panther, when she corners the pair of them at the office. Blimey, says Oliver after the escape. That panther smelled like Arena. Weird. (laughs) Arena, now in woman form, heads to her appointment with Hansi Dr Judd, who forces her into an embrace. Not without reason, she turns into a panther and rips his dick off. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but it doesn't end well for Judd. It ends dead for Judd. Arena slips away and goes to the zoo. Obviously she does. And there she opens the panther's cage with a stolen key and is struck down by the escaping big cat. Oliver and Alice arrive together to find a dead panther lying on the ground. She never lied to us, says Oliver. (laughs) The end. That panther's her, isn't it? The dead panther is Arena. Yeah, that's her. Right. She wasn't lying. She didn't lie to she, us. She is a panther. She is a panther. She's a dead she panther. She said she was. She wasn't lying. So, Jen, in mm. the intro, I used the word horror almost as many times as the Lost Boys uses the name Michael. <laughs> and you and I are both renowned horror wusses. Were you frightened? Yeah. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, but it's the past. It's you know, not scary. I don't know that. Like, I guess that I don't know. There must be some good horror films from the. I'm going to shut up. It, it no, it wasn't scary. Okay, is what I'm saying. I think it does build tension pretty well. The premise of it is so daft. What? Because it is quite <laughs> hard to take seriously. It's mercifully brief is what I will say, which goes for it. So with one hand you give her and the other you take her away, Mickey. You're like, we've got a film from 1942. Why? It's 73 <laughs> minutes long. Woohoo! Great times. Um, yeah, no, the premise of it is very daft. Just right from the start, you're just like, who is this sex pest in the park? Or the zoo, rather. He's like 
coming and bothering you. This is annoying. Mm -hmm. Oh, do you want to come back to mine for a cup of tea? Wicked. Okay, cool. Gets back there and then she's, I think you're my first friend. It's like, you've only known each other five minutes. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So it does, it, it, you know, it sets us still quite early on. It's a bit skip along if it's only 73 minutes. 73 minutes. No time for context. Just (laughs) crack on. And I appreciate that in a film, to be fair. I feel, I don't know if you're going to ask about this, but I feel really sorry for Arena because, you know, she's not bad. She doesn't want to be a cat person, does she? It's just like, unfortunately, this has happened. There's no plus sides to being a cat person, are there? There's absolutely none. Yeah. You you can't have sex because you'll turn into a jaguar. And it's it's a bit like, in fact, I wonder if this is where Joss Whedon got the plot for the second series of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from. With Angel and yeah. his lost soul. If he falls in love, he'll turn into bad angel. Oh, it's not if he falls in love. It's if he has a moment of pure happiness, which a man can only ever get when he's got his dick in his girlfriend, <laughs> Jen. Come on now. A heterosexual Sorry, man. My pops. bad. My <laughs> bad. But yeah, he he can't like if that happens to him, he will turn into bad angel. And because he's a very sensible man, he's been around for eight hundred years or whatever. He knows that if he puts his knob in his girlfriend, that's going to make him very happy indeed. <laughs> uh, he can't take that chance. He cannot take that chance because he's got a soul and a conscience, and he doesn't want to turn into bad angel because yeah. he has to live with what he's done so I, I actually think there's some parallels there yeah i think it's it's sort of a tragedy rather than a horror all mm. of my sympathy lay with arena i think another question is is oliver the world's thickest man he's a fucking <laughs> idiot so the other reason i felt sympathy for arena is because basically it's like the story of my dating life it's like she's like oh but i might like actually i might be a bit of a dick like this thing might happen like i'm not actually just all perfect as it goes and he's like whoa that's pretty (laughs) sexy isn't it until it turns out that her saying she might turn into a panther or whatever if aroused um i've got to be clear here this isn't the part that is similar to my life (laughs) the turning into a panther when aroused but like oh, I'm not actually just doing this to titillate you. This is just my personality. Sorry. Like, I am actually a bit difficult. It's not just here to, like, draw you in as a challenge or whatever. And then they go, oh, fuck, you are a cat person. Yeah. Can't be bothered with this anymore. I'm going to go out with my mate from work instead. (laughs) Because she gives the best hand shakes. (laughs) I can't imagine Oliver arousing passion in anyone. He's such a drip. He is. I loved the bit with the cat and the cat shop. Like I'm, I, I really enjoyed the bit where they go into the cat shop and it's like, and and the cats properly kick off. But also before that, when her the cat he's bought her, the little kitten that he's bought her kicks off. I found myself going like, all right, chill out. It's like, like <laughs> why are you making her feel worse about it? It's like, oh. Never seen that happen before. That's weird, isn't it? Why does that cat hate you so much? It really hates you, doesn't it? The cat was fine with the woman in the office who clearly fancies me. Yeah. What's wrong with you? I think it is interesting as well in that we've got this woman, we've got Irina, whose fears Mm -hmm. are dismissed. And instead, she's told she's insane. As Oliver says in those famous closing words, she never lied to us. (sighs) And she doesn't, and yet she's dismissed as insane. Mm. Every interaction with Arena has massive calm-down-dear vibes. Yeah, for sure. But, interestingly, 
He does at the end, obviously, say the the fame she never lied to us. So obviously, you know, the the way it's written is kind of like coulda, shoulda, woulda, Oliver Reed, isn't it? Like, you know, you should have taken her seriously. Mm. Which is kind of interesting because she's not taken seriously and at his peril. Or, well, at hers as it transpires, but... Yeah. I feel like she is sort of punished. There is no... There's no happy life for Irina. There's either a lonely life. I mean, obviously, some women would... And some people would be absolutely happy living a solo life. Like, that is not a judgment on coupling or anything for me. But she's not. Mm-hmm. She wants a friend. She wants someone to yeah. hang out with. She'd like to do some smooching, etc. And she can't. I mean, I have to say, I'd not thought that deeply about it. <laughs> I was just watching it, but you're quite right. No, she doesn't. Yeah. So let's talk about Alice and Arena and the good woman, bad woman dichotomy, because it's sort of laid out as simple as mad, destructive Serb carrying an evil curse versus fine, <laughs> rational, good-hearted American. Yeah. And I'd argue that Alice is a bit of a dick. Well, she's the one who's trying to cop off with a with a married man isn't she so like you know that's not very nice to start off with yeah why does she wait till he's married to tell him that she loves him i know you've had plenty of opportunities that scene is hilarious to me it's so funny because he very stiltedly goes oh there's problems with arena she thinks that if we get amorous she'll turn into a panther and alice goes oh gosh (laughs) i cry for you because i love you so much it feels like they're talking in British accents, even though they're not. They're talking in American accents. But yeah, it's the weirdest scene. And at the end, she goes, you and I will always understand each other. And then shakes him by the hand. It's so weird. It's so uh, weird. Maybe a handshake was like a more intimate gesture in 1942. I don't know. I don't think so. I think like obviously being seen as the other woman in inverted commas was probably mm. much more. I mean, it's still frowned upon now, but much more frowned upon as a as yeah. a move to make. She's not judged, though, is she? Exactly. It's like, well, I mean, his wife won't let him knob at her. Mm. So like fair play. And also like she is a cursed cat person. So what's a man to do? As I said right up the top, I would suggest maybe dating her for more than five minutes in order to (laughs) properly assess whether or not you guys are right for each other. Or maybe conducting an experiment, right? If she's convinced that if she gets amorous, she's going to turn into a panther, put her in a cage, kiss her through the bars, see what happens. Or say, basically, this woman thinks if we get amorous, she's going to turn into a panther. I think this is a lose-lose situation in terms of, like, romantic potential. Like, poor Arena, that's sad for her. But I think either she thinks she's going to turn into a panther and she's not, so she's, like, frankly bonkers, Mm. or she is going to turn into a panther (laughs) and I I definitely don't want to get involved with her, frankly. The upkeep of a panther is going to be pretty expensive, if I'm honest with you. It'd be a lot to take on. It's quite a big responsibility. Absolutely, and death is always going to be a concern. So, Well, in any marriage, to be honest with you, Jen. True. So I also feel Oliver is kind of portrayed as the main character in this. Yes. We're supposed to be more sympathetic to Oliver's plight. I don't think Irena is... I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just because I did feel sorry for her because, you know. But, like, 
I don't think she's presented as an unsympathetic character. I think it is, as you say, it is presented as like, this is a tragic situation, she can't win. Mm. I think they're probably all presented as sympathetic characters, aren't they? Like, I, I do think Irina is a sympathetic character and that's obviously mm. to do with the way they've told the story and filmed it. But I also feel like we're supposed to sympathise more with Oliver. So Arena obviously has this huge decision, like, does she risk it? What's going on? She doesn't know whether she will turn into a panther. She just assumes that she will. She feels that she will. She feels this kindred spirit with the animals, with the panthers. And that's her dilemma. But I feel like Oliver's dilemma at the end, where he's like, oh, do I get this marriage annulled or do I have her committed? Oh, which do I do? (laughs) Poor me. (laughs) Uh, is more like what we're supposed to be like oh poor Oliver what's he gonna do does he get his wife put in an institution but then he can't actually knob his workmate or does he annul it and she gets to trot off and be a panther somewhere else and then he gets to knob his workmate oh poor Oliver what a conundrum as luck would have it she winds up dead spoiler alert so um he's fine isn't he doesn't have to go through the uh, paperwork of an annulment uh, or or live with the um the, the guilt of having her committed so it's all ended quite nicely for oliver actually works out quite well for oliver uh, mm. yeah mm. no you're right it does. i i hadn't really thought of it like that what would you do if you turned into a cat how would you spend your day me i'd sleep just napping I'd find a sunny spot, I'd curl up and I'd go to sleep. Yeah. That's what I'd do. And I'd maybe eat a little bit of, uh, eat a few crisps later on in the day. Crisps. Cats quite like crisps. In my experience, all the cats we've ever had have liked a crisp. Very I think it's the saltiness, yeah. Mm. And um, yeah, I might eat a few crisps, eat some grass and be sick, go back to sleep again. Sounds very like my Sunday, if I'm honest with you, <laughs> <laughs> And I heartily recommend it, particularly the grass and the vomit. So, Jen, I feel this is potentially an unnecessary question for you. But cat people, rated or dated? (sighs) Mick, I am going to have to say... I I didn't hate watching it, actually, but I think it was, as I said at the top, mercifully brief. Um, It is, however, going to have to be a rated... uh, What the fuck? (laughs) It is, however... (gasps) gonna have to be a dated from me subconsciously rated by Jennifer there Freudian slip what about you I'm gonna say it's dated as well although I didn't have an awful time uh, I, I found it a lot funnier than I think it yes. was supposed to be <laughs> yes I would agree with that absolutely and I enjoyed the panther because what a beautiful animal the panther is yeah lovely yeah. but it wasn't scary no it wasn't I would say um the scariest thing in that film was the zookeeper's regard for security. Yeah, very <laughs> low regard. So you'll be chuffed that we're staying in the yeah. past next week, aren't we? God. I've never seen this, so I am quite excited to watch it. It's Hannah's pick, and we're going to be watching, again, 1942, Casablanca. Oh, I've actually seen that. Play it again, Jen. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.